Hello, and welcome to the Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Wendy. And I'm Trish. And this week, we are coming to you with the pretty sad case of Dominique Dunn, an actress taken before her time by a crazed boyfriend, apparently, who pretty much got away with it, I feel like. But we'll get into those details. Before we get started, we actually have semi-update on a case that we've covered in the past, Courtney Stauffer. Not really an update, more of a, a timely reminder. Yeah, this was a case we covered in season one, I believe episode six. Courtney Stafford, this is the 10th year anniversary of her disappearance. She disappeared from her apartment in Palmyra, PA after some evening, I want to say issues, problems with neighbors, fights, boyfriend getting arrested. It was a whole thing. So if you haven't already listened to that episode, go back and listen to it and, you know, pass it along. Unfortunately, her family works, as most families I think do, of loved ones that have gone missing. They really work tirelessly to keep their loved one's name in the media. So every year, especially in the central Pennsylvania region, there's always news coverage of her disappearance. They do an annual float to raise money. I believe the reward is up to over $100,000. It's a lot of clams. Yeah. Leading to information about her disappearance and where they can find her. I think the family's pretty realistic that she may not be alive. There's always hope. Mm-hmm. But I think they're realistic. They just want to bring her home, as most families do. So check it out. And that, again, is season one, episode six. But hey, this episode is our kickoff to season four. La-da-da-da. Let's get it that's started. A, that's our budget sound effects. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So thank you all for sticking with us. We greatly appreciate it. And I know I say that every time, but we truly do appreciate you turning in each week and, you know, reaching out to us, even if it's just to say hi or to give us some feedback or even to give us some case suggestions. So if you'd like to reach out to us, you can do so through our website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. On there, you will find all of our show notes all the resources we use to bring you that information, because we like to give credit where credit is due, and a contact page. And you can also reach out to us through our Facebook page, Criminal Discourse Podcast, our Insta page, Criminal Dis Pod, D-I-S-P-O-D. There's Twitter, at Criminal Pod. It's still there so far. (laughs) It's still there. (laughs) And our YouTube channel, where we put out little snippet videos, um, of episodes we've done. So yeah, lots of means. Maybe someday Snapchat. I don't know. I don't have it. (laughs) We'd have to start using it. I don't know. Maybe TikTok would come sooner than that. Maybe. Okay. I'm going to let you handle that. (laughs) I'm in my 50s. Okay. So that's... Okay. So I'm interested in this case. I remember when you brought it up when we were discussing upcoming cases, you brought up Dominique Dunn. I'm like, oh my gosh, I haven't thought of that in years. Such a sad case. It's a very sad case. And my entry point to her, of course, is the film she was in, Poltergeist. As a horror movie fan, as I'm sure many of our listeners are, true crime and horror communities aren't that far apart. A lot of people come to Dominique Dunn's story through that film. And a lot of people know about Poltergeist as being this cursed movie 
movie because of all these deaths associated with it. And hers is one of those that gets thrown into it. And she's often referred to as this horror movie actress. If you Google her, you'll mostly just see references to Poltergeist and her very tragic death at a young age. Some results when you Google her include her murder as evidence of that curse associated with the film series. But beneath all of that clickbait is really an all too familiar story about domestic violence escalating to murder. And that's why it's really so sad because it's not anything new or unusual. It's just another time where a woman gets with a guy she really loves. He love bombs her, takes advantage of her and her life ends way too soon because of it. And as is also far too common in these cases, it doesn't seem like the victim and her family received the justice that they deserved. So we're going to get back into Dominique Dunn's life here, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the months leading up to her murder. The day she was murdered, it was a Saturday, October 30th, 1982. She was 22 years old, and Dominique was in the middle of filming the television miniseries V, which Trish says she was a big fan of when it came out. I was. I was. (laughs) For those of you who don't know, V is a science fiction action adventure program involving extraterrestrials. It really is cool. They did a remake. Did you see the remake? Was I it cool? did. Good, as yeah. good? Um, I don't know if it, well, yeah, I mean, it was updated and the special effects were, you know, a little, they were a, a lot better. better. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I enjoy, I like a little sci-fi. They're both so. good. Dunn was playing the character Robin Maxwell, and she had invited fellow V actor David Packer over to read lines with her that night. Earlier that evening, Dunn had discovered a package on her doorstep. It was the night before Halloween, and her ex-boyfriend, 26-year-old John Sweeney, had sent her a chocolate mask that he carved in her likeness, along with some pumpkins. Personally, I think that's kind of creepy. Dunn responded to the gift by calling Ma Maison, a posh restaurant frequented by Hollywood's upper crust, where Sweeney was the executive chef. So I guess he's this fancy chef. He thought he was going to impress her and win her over with this strange gift. Co-worker of his, Michael Fague, picked up the call, handed it off to Sweeney, and observed him become quietly upset after hanging it up. It's over, Sweeney told him. Sweeney called Dunn repeatedly with no answer. Eventually, Sweeney called his therapist instead, telling him, quote, I'm losing it. I can't control myself anymore. Dunn called a friend to share what was happening explaining that she had agreed to meet Sweeney for lunch the next day. At one point during the call, an operator cut in asking Dunn if she would accept an emergency call from Sweeney, which she did. Sweeney asked to come over right away, but Dunn refused. Then Sweeney overheard David Packer arriving at Dunn's house for rehearsal, and he hung up the phone. Coworker Michael Fagg recalled Sweeney telling him, I'll be back, and chugging two martinis before leaving Mamezan. Sweeney then walked the 15 or 20 minutes to Dunn's West Hollywood residence, showing up at about 9 p.m. The two had shared the home until about a month prior, when Dunn had kicked Sweeney out over his abusive tendencies. David Packer remained inside when Dunn got up to answer the door. Sweeney said loudly, we've got to settle this right now. Packer called out asking, should I leave? Sweeney said yes, but Dunn asked him to wait inside. Dunn stepped out onto the porch with Sweeney, and the argument that followed was bad enough that Packer phoned a friend and told their answering machine, if I die tonight, it was by John Sweeney. Then he put on an album and returned to reading his script in the living room. And I don't know if he was ever interviewed in terms of 
why he didn't go out onto the porch or at least look outside to see what I mean, clearly it was loud enough that he felt he had to put an album on and leave a message that he may die tonight. Why not at least check on her and or call the police? I have not read or seen anything from David Packer personally. But everyone who was interviewed about it had kind of two theories. One, that John Sweeney was terrifying. And so Packer was terrified of him, maybe thinking that by him interfering, it would somehow escalate the situation. And then the other factor just being the time period, 1982, feeling like this is their business. I'm not going to interfere. And that was the polite thing to do as the house guest. The fight outside did continue to escalate. Packer started hearing thumping noises, was followed by two screams, and then silence. This is when Packer called local police, and they were dismissive. So some reports say that they told him to be a man and help her yourself. Some reports say that they also told him that it was outside their jurisdiction. So this is pre-911. It's a little difficult to just get emergency services immediately. And here he's telling them about a domestic violence incident. It, the message was clearly this was not a high priority for the police at this moment. So Sweeney strangled Dunn for more than four minutes during this time, dragging her by her throat about 55 yards across her driveway and onto her neighbor's property. When Packer finally investigated himself, he saw Sweeney standing over Dunn's lifeless body. Terrified, he attempted to escape over a back fence. Sweeney caught up to him, however, and told him to call the police. Packer made the call, and then he fled the scene. But he did call the police from a payphone later to confirm that they had finally dispatched. When police arrived, Sweeney greeted them by saying, Man, I blew it. I killed her. I didn't think I choked her that hard, but I don't know. I just kept on choking her. I just lost my temper and blew it again. Dunn wasn't breathing and didn't have a pulse. Police managed to revive her heart with CPR and rush her to the hospital while arresting Sweeney for assault and attempted murder. Dunn remained on life support in a coma with severe brain damage for almost five days. Her brain scans showed no signs of life. Only immediate family members were allowed to visit her bedside, and her father described her condition in heartbreaking detail. At first, I did not realize that the person on the bed was Dominique. There were tubes in her everywhere, and the life support system caused her to breathe in and out with a grotesque, jerking movement that seemed a parody of life. Her eyes were open, massively enlarged, staring sightlessly up at the ceiling. Her beautiful hair had been shaved off. A large bolt had been screwed into her skull to relieve the pressure on her brain. Her neck was purpled and swollen, vividly visible on it were the marks of the massive hands of the man who had strangled her. It was nearly impossible to look at her, but also impossible to look away. Dominique Dunn passed away on Thursday, November 4, 1982, at just 22 years old. That same day, Sweeney was charged with murder, to which he pled innocent. He pled not guilty to her murder that he admitted to when the cops got there. An autopsy determined her cause of death to be anoxic encephalopathy, I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, which is brain death from lack of blood flow to her brain, which was caused by strangulation with contusions over her larynx and contusions within the cartoid sheath. The autopsy report also noted contusions in capsule and submandula Manda, I'm not going to pronounce it, glands and massive aspiration pneumonia. Basically, this indicates deadly injury not only to her neck, but also to her lower jaw and a struggle for air in her final moments that caused her to inhale a large amount of fluid into her lungs. Very sad details. So since Dunn was murdered while filming V, her scenes were reshot with another actress in her place. 
When V debuted on television in two parts on May 1st and 2nd, 1983, they were dedicated in loving memory to Dunn. The day after her death, just a few hours after her autopsy, Dunn appeared as an unnamed Italian girl in an episode of the short-lived television adventure series, The Quest. I remember that too. You do. You have to tell me each time you remember a show. (laughs) Surprisingly, this wasn't Dunn's only posthumous work, and I find this really interesting. Dunn's episode of Hill Street Blues, which was a critically acclaimed police procedural, aired on November 18th, 1982, so just two weeks after her death, with a dedication to her memory at the episode's opening. So she guest starred as a teenage mother named Cindy on this show, who police tracked down after discovering an abandoned infant in a police cruiser. We first see Dunn as she is being beaten and name-called by her mother, and it's rumored that she didn't require makeup for those on-screen injuries because her boyfriend inflicted them in real life the night before filming. This is tossed around as a rumor, there's no dates given with it, but it is brought up in trial, so I think it's real. We can clearly see a cut on Dunn's lower lip, as well as bruising and swelling around her right eye and cheekbone when you watch the show. The episode is quite difficult to watch, not just because of those injuries, but because of the portrayal of Dunn's abuse and her terrified reactions to it. You have to imagine she's playing a character that's abused and she's abused in real life, the post-traumatic stress she was dealing with. It's horrific to see. And I will say, I everything that I could find that it's on YouTube for free or a streaming service, I linked Do- Dominique's episode or movie that she was in within the episode show notes on our website so you can watch it. And I did include that episode of Hill Street Blues. It's on Hulu, but I wouldn't watch it. It's very sad to see her being fake beaten, knowing that that's what she was going through at that time in her life and that those injuries were real. It's hard to watch, guys. Chillingly, Dunn's portrayal as an abuse victim with her real life injuries because her part in V was reshot, that would end up being her final acting role. So this is how she was memorialized. On a happier note, let's get to know Dominique a little bit more. Let's get to know who she was and not just how her life ended. Her potential as an actor started with a high school drama award, but close family friends remembered how seriously she took her annual Christmas performances when she was a little girl. Dunn was born November 23rd, 1959 in Santa Monica, California, to very famous parents, Dominic Dunn, an author and investigative journalist, and Ellen Griffin, an heiress and activist. She was the only living daughter of the couple who had lost two other daughters already in infancy. Dominic was all three daughters in one to us, triply loved, her father said. She had two older brothers, Griffin, another actor, director, and producer, and a brother named Alexander. Griffin Dunn was in Who's That Girl with Madonna. Oh, well, look at that. He has some chops. (laughs) Teen in the 80s. I remember all these. So family and friends remember Dunn's big heart for stray animals and her way of accomplishing whatever she set out to do. A future acting friend would say of her, quote, I think I'm a better person for having known her, having been touched by her life. Maybe some more optimism and love stays with me. Her smile certainly does. Dunn lived primarily with her mother after her parents divorced in her childhood. After high school, Dunn studied abroad in Italy, returning to her mother's California home after she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. So this was Dominique's mother. She did end up uh, becoming wheelchair bound by the time we go to trial here later on. Dunn's first television appearance happened on May 17, 1978, when she was a guest on The Mike Douglas Show. 
a long-running daytime variety and talk show at just 18 years old. I remember that as well. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're bringing up all my childhood stuff. Uh, this is good. Let's do it. I've been We've been doing the late 90s for so long, we need to take a dive into Trish childhood here. That fall, Dunn started studying drama at Colorado State University, and a fellow student remembers that, quote, she was just really at home on stage. She was quite natural. In 1979, her brother Griffin's friend, producer Charles Wessler, he's responsible for movies like Dumb and Dumber, in case anybody's curious, connected Dunn with an agent that would lead to numerous television roles in the coming year. So this is described as she decided, I'm going to be a serious actor, and she just did it and was successful. This is what I'm doing. It's happening. Dunn would also start participating in acting workshops in Los Angeles, where she was praised especially for her physicality and her fearlessness. So I think this is part of why it was surprising to some of her social circle that she ended up with a man like John Sweeney and in this condition that she ended her life. Dunn's first major role was in a made-for-TV melodrama called Diary of a Teenage Hitchhiker. I watched this on YouTube recently. It was a trip. She she was 19 years old when it aired on September 21, 1979. It's a cautionary tale about a serial rapist who uses highways as his hunting ground. I like it because they just don't make it like this anymore. Like, teaching you morality through television, movie entertainment. It's wonderful. Dunn plays a character named Kathy Robinson. She's the best friend of star Charlene Tilton, who was famous for being on Dallas. Yes. (laughs) The pair are part of a group of girlfriends who continue to hitchhike despite the risks. Dunn's character becomes one of the rapist victims, but she's also an underage, unwed teen mom. So she suffers a miscarriage to boot. And this would be the first of many instances where Dunn was cast as a teen falling on hard circumstances, which is in contrast to her life as other than this childhood divorce, even though her parents were very amicable, she was had a very privileged upbringing. She did not have unwed pregnancies, teen pregnancies. Hardship was not a part of her life. She didn't need to hitchhike. <laughs> No, she did not. (laughs) She was driving Rolls Royces and cute little VW bugs and wearing sunglasses from Italy. But this is the character. This is the role that she got cast in quite frequently. Two months later, on November 16, 1979, Dunn appeared in the Ed Asner drama Lou Grant, very popular, about a Los Angeles area newspaper editor. She played the role of second girl in the third season episode titled Kidnap. Dunn's next role was on a television drama called Family in a fifth season episode about unplanned pregnancy that aired on January 21, 1980. It was an episode titled When the Bow Breaks, and Dunn played Erica, a friend of the main character who wants to lose her virginity. Spicy 1980s television. They knew how to bring it. (laughs) That same year, Dunn, who's now 20, would film another made-for-TV movie and return for a second episode of Lou Grant. So in the movie Valentine Magic on Love Island, which was released February 15, 1980, Dunn played Cheryl, the niece of a resort operator who helps the main characters fall in love. And in Lou Grant's fourth season episode Goop, which aired November 24, 1980, Dunn played Terry Wilk, an upgrade from her billing as second girl on the series a year before. She got a name this time. (laughs) Good job, Dominique. So at 21 years old, Dunn appeared in her first recurring television role in the comedy drama series Breaking Away, which was based on a movie of the same name about Midwestern working class young people. Unfortunately, the TV series only lasted for a single season. 
Dunn was featured as Paulina Bornstein, one of the main characters' love interests in three of the show's eight episodes between December 1980 and January 1981. Again, all of these episodes that are available to watch today, they are linked in our show notes. Go enjoy. (laughs) Dunn appeared on several more programs in the fall of 1981, including CBS Children's Mystery Theater's second season premiere in The Haunting of Harrington House, which aired on September 8th, 1981. Dunn was Polly Ames, the daughter of a hotel owner investigating the ghostly activity that's frightening tenants away. Then Dunn appeared in two very different made-for-TV movies, the first being Unit 4, which aired on September 29, 1981. She played Tracy Phillips in this adventure film about a military commando who rescues a government official and his family from terrorists. Next, Dunn starred in The Day the Loving Stopped which was released October 16, 1981. She played Judy Danner, a bride-to-be, coming to terms with her parents' divorce on the eve of her own wedding. And I'll tell you, the next time I'm in the mood for some early 80s soft entertainment, I'll be watching that one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you can see the progression of her career, right? She starts out as unnamed roles, you know, second girl. And now she's making made-for-TV movies and starring roles. The main character. Yes. And then, of course, Bouldergeist, which really, I think, just shot her up. Here we go. Well, unfortunately, the fall of 1981 is also when Dominique Dunn attended a Beverly Hills house party where she met 25-year-old John Sweeney. So friend and acting classmate Gloria Gifford recalled that Sweeney zeroed in on Dunn during the party. And when you hear her describe it... There's we link in the show notes an E true Hollywood show about Dominique. When you hear Gloria describe the way that Sweeney and Dunn interacted that first night, the way that she describes it, it really sounds to me like love bombing. Like he kind of targeted her and was different with everyone else, but focused on her and just everything about Dominique. I love you. You're the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. Kind of everyone else saw it, but Dominique, she loved it. Family friend Charles Wessler, so this is her brother Griffith's friend, felt that Sweeney, quote, didn't really seem like her kind of guy, but the two fell in love all the same. He described Sweeney as the type of person who, upon first impression, just seemed phony and fake. Dunn and Sweeney moved in together after only a few weeks. The following year, in 1982, the number of Dunn's acting roles doubled. Not only that, but the prestige of these roles increased, and she was cast in her first major motion picture, so that would be Poltergeist. Dunn's friends noticed negative changes around this time, too, like Dunn and Sweeney dressing in the same color when they went out. I didn't like that, Gloria Gifford remembered. It seemed like a claiming thing. She also remembered Sweeney's fits of jealousy like accusing Dunn's acting teacher of taking sexual interest in her. Gifford said he was very possessive in that he didn't really want her to have friends. He wanted to do everything with her. He started to pull her away from her friends. Isn't that usually the MO, Mm -hmm. right? The love bombing to get them, the quickly moving in together, and then make separating them from family and friends, Mm -hmm. isolating them. Mm-hmm. wanting them to be their their everything, their only world. What's interesting to me is it's really only this close female friend of hers who's talking about the cycle, instinctively knowing that this guy isn't good, but everyone else in her life is like, oh, we just thought they were moving too fast. They didn't pick up on it in the same ways early on, the way that you would today, knowing the pattern of abuse. Right. And in the 80s, honestly, probably the 90s, Even into the 2000s, domestic violence or dating violence really was not, it was kind of one of those private things you didn't talk about. You didn't. 
It was your private business. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't see it as a crime, sadly. Right. Dunn's work in 1982 actually began with a February 25 episode of Fame during the popular show's debut season. She played Tracy in the episode titled Street Kid, a teen runaway turned sex worker who, within 30 minutes, cleans up and returns to her family. Dunn followed this with a March 30 appearance on the mystery series Heart to Hearts third season. Love that show. Yeah. <laughs> Loved that show. Maybe that should be the next one I watch instead of the main for TV movie. No, watch Heart to Heart. Heart to Heart? Yeah. Watch Heart to Heart. <laughs> well, in the episode titled Heartline and Sinker, Dunn played Christy Farron, and she's framed for murder by a local backwoods sheriff. It sounds like a cute little, like the main characters help her get out of the jam, and it sounds like a cute little Well, show. the main characters of Heart to Heart, they're a rich couple. Okay. And they're married. Oh, gosh. And the totally, the, I can picture them. I know if people told me them, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's them. And people are probably like, come on, Trish, it's such and such and such. <laughs> but they are married and they're kind of like PIs nice. in a way. That sounds they a fall little... into these mysteries together and they work as a husband and wife team. It's more exciting than some of the other stuff. Some I like their offerings. Dunn's breakout role came next when the horror film Poltergeist was released on June 4, 1982. Dunn played Dana Freeling, the teenage daughter of a family terrorized by their haunted suburban home. So if you guys haven't seen this, what's wrong with you? It's It's a classic. It's a standard. It was shortly after Poltergeist's release when Dunn brought Sweeney out to New York to meet her father and brothers. During this trip, a fan recognized Dunn from Poltergeist, quoted her famous what's happening line at her and then began talking to her. Enraged and insinuating flirtation, Sweeney picked up and shook the man in front of several scared witnesses, including Dunn's brothers. So this is kind of the first hint to her family that this guy is a little bit kooky. The next day, Dunn's father met the couple for lunch. A tense Dunn and Sweeney arrived late, and it was clear that Dunn had been crying just beforehand. So her father remembered feeling like something was off, and that Sweeney was more in love with his daughter than his daughter was with Sweeney. It was just the hunch that he was starting to get. And he shared those sentiments with Dunn's mother after this New York trip, and she agreed. But Dunn had already confided to her mother that Sweeney had a terrible temper and occasionally destroyed furniture and housewares. But she assured her mother that Sweeney would never hurt her. He just breaks all my stuff. He's never going to hurt me. So at this point, he hadn't probably physically hurt her. I mean, he's destroying things around her. He's threatening her. I'm sure he's emotionally abusive and verbally abusive, but he hasn't, it sounds like, laid a hand on her yet. Yet. Dunn's mother would witness even more of their abusive relationship after an incident on August 27, 1982. So this may be the major first incident of domestic physical violence that we see. After suffering a beating from Sweeney, a terrified Dunn retreated to her mother's home to recuperate. Sweeney had pulled her around by her hair, beating her head off the floor and pulling out clumps of her hair in the process. Dunn stayed at her mother's for two days until Sweeney showed up to apologize with a bouquet of flowers. Dunn's father would later recount how as he and his family watched Sweeney being arraigned on the evening news for his daughter's murder, we all began to feel guilty for not having spoken out our true feelings about Sweeney when there was still time to save Dominique from him. I think that's one of the biggest seeds to take away from this is the family regrets not saying something sooner. 
Dunn would appear in two more television roles before her death, the first being another made-for-TV movie called The Shadow Riders, which was released on September 28, 1982. Dunn played Sissy Travern in the Civil War-era romance starring two hunks of the time, Tom Selleck and Sam Elliott. And you could still say... Hunky. Still hunky. I I would say Silver foxes now. They are. Sweeney was in such a fit of jealousy over Dunn filming along these two actors that he encouraged her not to take the part. She did anyway. This would be her final film, and it was just two days prior to the film's airing when Dunn suffered a life-threatening attack from Sweeney that led to their breakup. This is also probably the incident that put the marks on her that we see in the Hill Street Blues episode. So during Sweeney's murder trial, Dunn's friend Brian Cook testified about this incident. He witnessed the attack with his girlfriend on September 26, 1982. After returning home from a double date and retiring to bed, the visiting couple awoke to Dunn and Sweeney arguing loudly. Cook yelled for them to go to bed and settle their differences in the morning. Next, Cook and his girlfriend heard a thud and then the sound of Dunn gasping for air. Then Dunn shouted, Brian, please help me, as she ran to her friend in tears. He just tried to kill me. Can't you see the marks on my neck? When Sweeney entered the room, Cook described him as very scary. He was denying completely that he'd even touched her. We were all a little fearful. Dunn asked to use the bathroom, but she didn't return. Instead, she climbed out of a window and into her blue convertible Volkswagen. Sweeney rushed from the house when he heard the car engine start, and he jumped up on the hood of the car. He held on by the car's windshield wipers as Dunn drove away, finally hopping off about a block down the road. Dunn escaped to a friend's home who took photographs of the strangulation marks that would later be shown in court. Sweeney would claim that he had only tried to restrain Dunn from leaving the house that night, nothing more as if that's an excuse for doing that. As soon as the dust settled, Dunn demanded that Sweeney move out and get therapy, which he did. Dunn explained to her father, quote, he's not in love with me. He's obsessed with me. It's driving me crazy. And that quote about he's not in love with me, he's obsessed with me, just I go down all my rabbit holes with the OJ Simpson, Nicole Brown case. And that was something she said over and over. He's obsessed with me. He's not in love with me. It's almost as you were in a relationship with your stalker. Yes. Dunn's friends helped her hide from Sweeney for a few weeks, letting her stay with them and covering for her when he called. Sweeney began stalking Dunn by showing up outside her acting classes. During his trial, Sweeney said it was around this time when he broke into Dunn's vacant home and attempted suicide by swallowing pills. Actor Miguel Ferrer, a friend of Dunn's in acting classes with her, recalled when Sweeney accused him of hiding Dunn and having an affair with her. I know she's there, Sweeney insisted. He called my house, ranting and raving, just insane stuff. The veneer was gone, is what Ferrer said. Dunn seemed embarrassed when Ferrer told her about the incident later, but she tried to laugh it off as much as she could. And this is a time where you just didn't leave. I mean, there were landlines, Mm -hmm. so it's not like you could block his number. Mm -mm. I mean, that's kind of the sad part of it. You had to leave your landline on because other people could try to reach you. There were answering machines, which I'm sure he blew up. I could imagine if you call the police with this sort of stuff, the answer is, well, we can't really do anything until he really does something. There's not much they're going to do about it. Dunn's last television appearance while she was still alive 
was on the popular crime drama Chips. On October 10, 1982, she played Amy Kent, a 16-year-old runaway with a newborn baby, in the six-season premiere titled Meet the New Guy. You see, I'm sure you've seen Chips. Oh, that's a popular yes, one. Yes, I did. <laughs> More cuties in that show, too. Two days later, on October 12, Dunn called a locksmith out to her house. The locksmith recalled that she was very nervous during the appointment stating that she had to change the locks due to problems she was having with someone. That same someone, who we presume was Sweeney, drove by while the locksmith was there. Shooting for V began on October 13th, which was the next day. Director Kenneth Johnson remembered that Dunn seemed distracted on set, like her mind was elsewhere. Obviously, and I would say this speaks to her professionalism, that this is the only incident of anyone professional noticing that there might be a problem going on in her life. On October 25, 1982, almost a month after Sweeney attacked and nearly killed her, Dunn finally moved back into the home where it happened. She would live there less than a week before Sweeney would return to finish the job. While cleaning Dunn's home after her funeral, friends discovered an undated letter she wrote to Sweeney. Part of it read, I am not permitted to do enough things on my own. Why must you be a part of everything I do? Why do you want to come to my writing lessons and my acting classes? Why are you jealous of every scene partner I have? Why must I recount word for word everything I spoke to Dr. Black about? Why must I talk about every audition when you know it is bad luck for me? Why do we have discussions at 3 a.m. all the time instead of during the day? Why must you know the name of every person I come into contact with? You go crazy over my rehearsals. You insist on going to work with me when I have told you it makes me nervous. Your paranoia is overboard. You do not love me. You are obsessed with me. The whole thing has made me realize how scared I am of you, and I don't mean just physically. I'm afraid of the next time you are going to have another mood swing. When we are good, we are great. But when we are bad, we are horrendous. The bad outweighs the good. Perhaps something in John Sweeney's past can help explain how he became a domestic abuser who escalated to murder. Not excuse it, but maybe shed some light on what happened here. Sweeney was born in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, which is a rural working class area of the Northeast United States. In 1956, Sweeney's father, John Sr., worked at a local beryllium plant. Sweeney's mother, Mora, was a waitress. The oldest of six children, Sweeney would intervene when his father's alcoholism led to physical violence toward his mother, but this only turned his father's abuse toward him. Neighbors, co-workers, and police were all aware of problems in the Sweeney household, and they described the eldest son as physical and pretty aggressive. Sweeney's high school jobs training counselor described him as, quote, an intelligent young man who appeared to have a lot of ambition and drive pent up inside him. He seemed like a nice kid, very intelligent, gifted. After taking culinary courses at Luzerne County Community College, Sweeney landed a chef's job at a local fine restaurant called Carmen's. The owner said Sweeney was, quote, very ambitious and destined for bigger and better things. Friends from this time remember Sweeney taking karate, self-defense, and painting classes. This was a weird fact. They claim he once did a painting entirely in human blood, but they were too nervous to ask if it was his or someone else's. That was for part of his painting class. Ew. Hello, hepatitis. <laughs> in 1976, Sweeney relocated to California. He severed ties with his family, and he began dating a woman named Lillian Pierce. Pierce suffered extreme violence at Sweeney's hands during their two-year relationship, resulting in a collapsed lung, a broken nose, a punctured eardrum, and two hospital stays. Sweeney threw things at her when she tried to leave. He smashed household items. 
and she said he even foamed at the mouth when he lost control. This is also when Sweeney started working at California's illustrious Maison restaurant under head chef Wolfgang Puck. He replaced Puck in 1981, shortly before meeting Dominique Dunn. After Sweeney's arrest, Maison's owner Patrick Terrell told reporters that Sweeney was, quote, very dependable young man, very responsible, a very good cook. So with him taking over as the head chef at Maison at this time and Dominique being cast in Poltergeist at this time, her career on the rise, they were both kind of ascending. They were kind of a hot couple. Chef Michael Fague, who was working with Sweeney the night he murdered Dunn, recalled Maison's kitchen environment as, quote, the most pressure-packed restaurant I'd ever worked in without a doubt. Fag said Sweeney was high energy and very creative when it came to dealing with the intense atmosphere, if not, quote, a bit temperamental, but you find that a lot in the restaurant business. And that's true, but that's also how I can see him kind of getting away and flying under the radar with some of his problematic behavior. Though Patrick Terrell, the Maison owner, would later deny directly funding Sweeney's legal defense, their support of the murderer in the media, either directly or indirectly, would contribute to the restaurant's downfall. After Dunn's murder, the lawyers, businessmen, celebrity clientele that once frequented the eatery slowly stopped making reservations. The restaurant closed in 1985, two years after Sweeney's convictions. I don't feel bad about a restaurant for rich people in Los Angeles, but this just goes to show that it's not just the victim that you hurt. (laughs) The controversial conviction came from what prosecutor and California District Attorney Steve Barshup called, quote, the worst trial I've had in 25 years. Through researching this case, P.S. and by the way, I've fallen in love with Steve Barshup. He is the most straight to the point just the facts, Jack. Sweeney's a wife beater. I hate this guy kind of dude. He was wonderful to listen to. There was no question whether Sweeney had murdered Dunn, only whether he had done so in, quote, the heat of passion or with malice. So the prosecution argued that Sweeney's history of violence proved his attack on Dunn was part of a pattern, and he planned to kill Dunn because she refused to reconcile. And choking her for more than four minutes was proof of his malicious intent. And Barshop, in his opening statements, actually had everyone do a four-minute moment of silence to kind of hit the point home that this is how long he had to continue doing this for her to die. However, presiding judge Burton Katz ruled that testimonies about Sweeney's abusive history from battered ex-girlfriend Lillian Pierce and from Dunn's own mother, who, remember, had multiple sclerosis and would be giving her testimony from a wheelchair, was, quote, more prejudicial than probative. So the jury never heard any of it. Katz also ruled that statements from Dunn's friends and colleagues were inadmissible hearsay, but they would have shown the jury that in her final weeks, Dunn feared that Sweeney was going to murder her. So how is it necessarily hearsay if Dunn spoke directly to them, the conversations they had with them? It's not them saying, well, someone told me that Dunn was scared. You know, this is a conversation I had with her and now she's dead. Talking about why she was scared. Because Katz said so. (laughs) how long did he remain a judge well (laughs) it did change it this this trial altered the outcome of his career for sure throughout the seven-week trial sweeney presented as remorseful and despondent he always held a bible and he occasionally cried his preliminary hearing had already been delayed due to a publicized suicide attempt On the stand, he emphasized the romantic side of his relationship with Dunn. He read a letter she wrote him asking him for space, which he interpreted as a promise of reconciliation. You know, once the space is over, we'll get back together. 
Without corroboration, Sweeney also claimed he met with Dunn in person just days before her murder, saying they hugged, kissed, and spoke about their future together. Thus, Sweeney was overwhelmed by a, quote, swirl of confusion and rage when on October 30th, Dunn called and told him it was over. At her house, Sweeney says Dunn admitted she had lied to him, and the resulting anger caused him to black out as he lunged at her. So he's blaming her, which I'm sure most domestic abusers who have no soul and have are very insecure people blames her. She led me on. She she said, give me space. Maybe, dude, it was her way of telling you she needed space because she was going to try to let you down gently mm -hmm. and slowly move her way out of your life. Or she was terrified that if she told you directly, bluntly to the point yes. to your face, you might kill her because you did. Right. I don't think she did outright lie to him. I think she was walking a tightrope, walking on eggshells around him. Absolutely. Even if she did lie to him, even if she did knowingly lead him on, doesn't mean you get to murder her. I don't think she <laughs> met with him. I don't think any hugging and kissing went on. No. None of that went on. That's his fantasy in his head to, you know, bolster his story like, oh, she led me on and then I just snapped. Completely not reality. Unfortunately, the jury didn't agree with us, Trish. They believed that Dunn was torturing Sweeney with mixed messages. They could see how that would cause him to, quote, flip out. What was this jury makeup? Oh, it was it was mostly men. I think it was nine Hello. men. Mm -hmm. The jury foreman explained how, quote, the talk was, well, anybody would be distraught, would be hurt, would be shattered. Anybody. But not anybody would kill someone because they were hurt by their girlfriend. How did anybody put their hands around someone's neck for four minutes and like drag them around the yard by their hair? Thank you. This is pretty obvious. Defense attorney Mike Adelson presented Sweeney as, quote, a blue collar kid who got mixed up in Beverly Hills society and couldn't handle it. Prosecutor Steve Barshup saw it as a, quote, poor lovesick puppy act from someone with a pattern of being violent and getting away with it. He added, no, Sweeney, this isn't heat of passion. This is what you do. You beat women. The jury found Sweeney guilty of the lesser of the two charges before them. So they found him guilty for voluntary manslaughter. Jurors reported frustration with their 120-page instructions from Judge Katz and his unhelpfulness in answering their questions. So I couldn't believe this part of it. When asked on four occasions to provide clarifications on their instructions, the judge declined saying, quote, it won't help or it's in the instructions. A few said they would have decided differently if they understood their instructions or had heard about Sweeney's prior abuse. So imagine if your kid was like asking for help with homework and you're like, mm, it's in the homework. That's not that's not what you this is a murder trial. The jury foreman explained to the press, quote, a few jurors were just hot and tired and wanted to give up. Wow. After severe backlash to the verdict, obviously, Judge Katz admonished the jury and the district attorney at sentencing, promising the harshest penalty for Sweeney. But of course, it was too late to really do anything. The maximum sentence at the time was only six years and six months, of which Sweeney only served three years. It's important to remember that for all his heavy-handedness at sentencing, it was Judge Katz who dismissed the critical evidence against Sweeney and kept a first-degree murder charge off the table in the first place. He, in the end, ended up going to children's court. His career as a murder trial judge faded away to nothing. Oh, I'm sure the press they got after this, yes. that he was demoted. Very much It's kind so. of like when you're a police detective and all of a sudden you're working traffic. <laughs> Basically, that's what happened to him. 
The trial did spur some legislative changes, including maximum sentence increases for manslaughter in 1983, and it inspired Dunn's mother, Ellen Griffin, to help other families in similar positions of grief. And in 1984, she helped establish Justice for Homicide Victims, a victims' rights advocacy group that aims to improve domestic violence awareness and legislation. So it wasn't long after his early release before Sweeney took a high-paying job, a chef's job, at Santa Monica's The Chronicle Restaurant, which is now called The Victorian. Disgusted, Justice for Homicide Victims members handed out flyers to restaurant patrons that said something along the lines of, the hands that prepared your food strangled Dominique Dunn to death. There's a lot of different ways that people will say this flyer read, but that's the essential meaning. A subsequent boycott of the restaurant led to Sweeney's firing, but he was working at the Bellage Hotel in West Hollywood, which is now the London West Hollywood at Beverly Hills a short time later. So essentially, it doesn't seem not only did he not get the sentence he deserves, but it didn't really hurt his career, his finances, his lifestyle at all. Although activists quit harassing him, there are reports that Dunn's father, Dominic, pursued Sweeney from his release in 1986 until Dominic passed away in 2009. So Dominic Dunn hired a private detective named Anthony Pelicano to keep tabs on Sweeney, even after Sweeney changed his name in 1996 to John Patrick Mora. Mora was his mother's name. Patrick was Mamezan's owner, Patrick Terrell. So maybe that's how he got the name. So Dominic Dunn admitted that he also wanted to hire someone to kill Sweeney. Quote, I know it seems absurd now, but I worship my daughter. I just became obsessed with this guy getting out of prison. I wanted harm to come to him. Fortunately, Dominic was willing to be talked out of it. And that didn't happen. But I can't blame him. There's always the fear that domestic abusers turned killers will reoffend after release. And those close to this case agree that potential exists for Sweeney, or rather John Patrick Mora, who now works for a retirement community in California. Trial prosecutor Steve Barshop said, do I think he's a time bomb? Of course I do. Family friend Charles Wessler agrees John Sweeney is a killer. He is capable, very capable, of killing again. In an interview shortly after the trial, Sweeney's defense attorney said, I think he will be safe if he gets the therapy he needs. His rage needs to be worked upon. The trial judge, this is Judge Katz, replied to the same question, I wouldn't be comfortable with him in society. The jury foreman stated, if it were up to me, Sweeney would have spent the rest of his life in jail. It was up to him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was up to them. And I will say from a jury's perspective, they have to go on what's presented. Correct. They didn't know any of this other information. So as soon as they're released and, you know, they're reading the news and watching the news. Oh, I didn't know he had a history of this. Oh, That's I right. didn't know she had fled her home and changed her locks and did all these things. Mm-hmm. I would have given him a much harder sentence. I Yes, the jury, I don't blame them per se, because clearly they were frustrated if they're asking for guidance on the instructions and the judge is basically phoning it in from the stand. It's him. I I blame the judge. I blame the judge much more. There was a little bit of that sexism of, well, I could see how she led him on and that would cause anybody to flip out. There was a little bit of that sympathizing, but not to the I'm sure he enjoyed family court or traffic court or wherever they sent him. (laughs) Former co-worker and chef Michael Fague, remember, he's the one who was working with John Sweeney the night that he murdered Dominique. He attended a Dodgers baseball game with Sweeney right after he was released from prison. Fague said that Sweeney wasn't the same person and had become very religious. In an interview around that same time, Sweeney reflected on his relationship with Dunn, saying, 
if I was the person I am today, I think it could have worked. I'm more in touch with myself, the violence that's always been a part of my life. And then he goes on to talk about how he hopes to get married someday. And that just ticked me off. Because instead, this October 30th will mark 40 years since he murdered Dominique Dunn. She'd be 62 years old today. And who knows what we might remember her for if things had turned out differently. So if you're sad, I encourage you, go to the show notes, look up some of these articles, watch her shows, watch the things she was in, remember her for what she was, not as a scream queen, domestic violence victim. And um, yeah, there may be some links in there about where John is today. If you'd like to look into that, I'm not saying do it. I'm just saying it's there. And if you're a victim of domestic violence or you're listening to this episode and some of the things that happened to Dominique are happening in your life, maybe not the physical part of it, but the things that lead up to that, there's always help. Or someone you know, talk to that person, tell somebody, reach out. Yes. I would say that's the biggest regret, not even the frustrating trial and everything else that happened after, but just that family and friends saw this and nobody wanted to interfere out of respect for Dominique. But in retrospect, what they wouldn't give to interfere and butt in. Yes, absolutely. I remember interviews with her father gave after Mm -hmm. her death and the trial. And then he went on, he had actually a show, I want to say on uh, Discovery ID for a time or one of those early true crime stations that Mm -hmm. he reported on true crime cases. Mm -hmm. But I do remember his interviews and how heartbreaking Mm-hmm. heartbreaking that he loved his daughter immensely. And, you know, to know these things, to have a time machine mm-hmm. to go back. Yeah. And I think a lot of times we talk about cases where we don't know what happened. Like we talked about Courtney Stauffer at the top. We don't know what happened to her and we we plead for information. But this is one we know exactly what happened. Why doesn't it feel like closure? So lots right. of ways you can get frustrated with yes. this kind of stuff. Good <laughs> case. All right, everybody, you know where our show notes are. They're on our website. And if you've enjoyed this episode, let us know, you know, reach out to us or whatever platform you're listening to us on. If you could subscribe, that'd be great. If you could leave us a review, that would be even better. As always, if you see something, say something. I think this case just screams that. If you see something going on, say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime or you can bring awareness and maybe get some help and intervene before something tragically goes wrong. And as always, we want you to be safe, but we also need to look out for one another and be kind to one another. So until next time, guys, bye. bye.